you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 7th. Today, why so many family farms are facing bankruptcy, the long-term impacts for a mass shooting survivor, and an online haven for white nationalists. I heard Senator John Tester of Montana on Face the Nation. He's a farmer himself. He has a wheat farm in Big Sandy, Montana. And he said essentially that, you know, if this if the trade war keeps up, farmers are going to start going broke. The trade war has to end. Uh, we need those foreign markets. Uh, I personally have about 40% of my crop still on the farm from 2017 because of the trade war. Uh, most folks can't stand that. In fact, after about 18 months, they'll start going broke. We need those markets. For years, American farmers have been struggling because of falling prices and flooding and blizzards. But now, the U.S. trade war with China has pushed a growing number of family farms to the edge. There's a lot of farmers out there who are trying to make hard decisions right now. Should I continue? What should I do? Should I sell everything? Etc. Annie Gowan is a national correspondent for The Post. She covers the Midwest. You know, you have the trade wars that just seem to be never-ending, at least in terms of China, and then you have the the horrible hit that they took in terms of the weather. And so the frustration is starting to grow. Annie wanted to find a family that was dealing with some of these challenges. And that's how she started talking to the Krochaks. I was looking through the local papers to see if anyone had actually spoken about this. And Liz Krocek had given a small interview to the Minnesota Extension Service because they had been helpful to the family. They had provided a farm crisis counselor that guided them through their attempts at saving the farm. So she was kind of open to talking about that. And um, and so I figured, well, if she's going to talk, if she wants to talk about that, then she might w- be willing to talk to us. Now, was she willing to let us come and sort of follow her around for two weeks, <laughs> three weeks, a whole year? Um, <laughs> that's sort of what it led to. But in the beginning, it was just trying to find somebody who was willing to talk to us about this tough moment in their lives. Hello, Annie. So they're the Krochek family of Montgomery, Minnesota. They're a big family, a big loving family. There's a, a matriarch and a patriarch, uh, Bob and Liz, and they're in their 60s. And they farm with their eldest son, Marty, and his wife, Sarah, and they have four kids. Their story is that they were dairy farmers, and dairy farmers have been really particularly hard hit in recent years by falling prices, changing tastes, and now the trade war. And so they, they decided last year to sell their dairy herd, which was very difficult for them because I think dairy farmers will tell you that dairy farming is a way of life. You know, the cows have to be milked no matter what, every day, twice a day, seven days a week. Our whole adult life, mm-hmm. our whole adult life, milking cows and doing chores. You're going to make me cry again, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> it is It is emotional. And it's because you feel like a failure. 
so many forces against you at one time. So we know that um, we gave it our best effort. We were good at what we did. We produced quality milk. We sat on the top 100 dairy herds in Minnesota year after year. Produced quality milk. It just, we couldn't get ahead. Couldn't do it all. Without a, without a fair price for milk, we couldn't do it all. We had to sell. Now they're trying to transition into crop farming because they desperately are trying to save the farm itself, the land. So they sold the dairy herd last year, and now they're trying to raise crops at a very difficult time in American history for farmers to sort of see if they can dig themselves out of debt and save their land. Because they thought that potentially farming crops would be more lucrative than keeping up with this dairy herd. Right. So they're farming organic corn and soybeans and small grains. So tell me about the things that happened in their lives that led up to this big decision to change what they were going to do. Okay, well, so a little bit of backstory about the dairy industry. So the price of milk has fallen about 40% in the last five years. And why is that? Well, the global overproduction of milk, changing American taste. You know, we're drinking soy milk, we're drinking almond milk. And then recent, most recently in the last year, um, the dairy industry has been hit hard by tariffs from Mexico and from China. So, And so that the, the fact that people abroad are not buying as much cheese or milk byproducts is trickling down to what this family is experiencing here. Right. So the Krochak family have had a farm in Minnesota since 1888, and they've had a dairy herd for decades. So it was a very, very painful decision for them to sell sell their herd and to get out of dairy farming. So since they sold their dairy herd and decided to go into planting soybeans and, and corn, have things improved for them? Um, no, actually, I was talking to Liz yesterday, and she said, um, we're fighting battles on every front. I don't think God likes farmers very much this year. So what's happened this year for farmers in general is that in addition to the trade war and low commodity prices, there's also been this historic blizzards and then floods and then rain, which delayed crop planting, you know, precipitously in some cases. So like a lot of folks that had grain and soybeans that weren't able to sell it last year because of the trade war, China wasn't buying, have saved these beans and then they couldn't get the beans out to market because the Mississippi was too high and the river was closed and the barges were stopped. And then um, the trains couldn't go forward because there was a flood on the tracks, you know, so. It sounds like kind of a perfect storm. Well, everybody says that. That's what they say. They, They say it's a perfect storm. Um, so for these particular guys, um, this particular family, they were trying to plant corn and they were delayed because of rain, which was throwing all their planting off. It was pretty new to them. So they had borrowed some equipment that didn't work. And now, of course, the, the corn has come up and it's kind of sickly looking because much of the corn in the area has not actually grown to fruition or not actually doing that well because of the delay and the rains, et cetera. So they're really, they're really struggling right now. If they can't make the crop farm work this year, then they're going to have to give up farming altogether. Well, it is kind of a make or break. We've um, working with our lender who has been real cooperative and understanding, but man, we have to, we need to cut a bit of a break here and have a good crop and something to sell to pay bills to get ahead. Yeah, so you've had, I mean, you've had, this isn't new. You guys have been struggling with low commodity prices for several years, but now you've got, you've had this historic rainfall and that's delayed the crop planning this year and then the ongoing trade war, which has had an impact on prices. It has had great pressure on 
price. It has had pressure on crops being sold, international sale of crops. Crops aren't moving. There's no market to sell grain. Earlier this spring, I was at an anniversary party, and the neighbors, the farmers were all talking about, we all schedule our loan payments around when we can ship corn. So, you know, you have a loan payment due in the spring. You ship your corn a month before you can make your loan payment. But this year, tariffs, the weather, the rivers were too high. The barges weren't running. Corn wasn't moving. Beans weren't moving. They weren't selling. And the weather prevented shipment. Again, forces that are out of our control. We can plan. The forces are out of our control to execute those plans. So when we hear President Trump talk about the trade war and talk about why he's why he's doing it, why he's putting these all these tariffs in place, he really talks about how he's protecting American workers and American farmers, and that this is really for them. But it sounds like people like the Krocheks have not benefited from these tariffs, and that they're that they're suffering. I think Liz would be the first to tell you that right now is one of the most difficult times in history for American farmers and that the trade war is not making it any easier for them to save their farm. They're actually Democrats. So, for example, Bob is growing out his hair and (laughs) declare that he's not going to cut it until uh, Trump's out of office. But um, (laughs) so but generally speaking, I will say that, you know, farmers as a whole, You know, they helped elect Trump and they were instrumental in electing Trump and they remain, for the most part, in support of him. And when you ask them, what about this question? They say, well, we're willing to take a a short-term hit for a long-term gain because they feel like China in particular has been gaming the system for decades and that they feel that Trump is, you know, the first person that's ever really been willing to take that, that whole system on. But if they're willing to take a short-term hit for a long-term gain, how long is the short-term going to go on for? You know, well, like, I think like that's, you know, I did a different story in South Dakota with a farmer, and he sort of was one of the first that has spoken out about the fact that farmers are really beginning to fray. I mean, their their frustration is palpable. What do you think the story of the Krochaks says about the state of being an American farmer right now? Well, first of all, I think it shows how fragile the farmers are right now. And in a bigger picture way, I think how disconnected a lot of people are. I mean, I think one reason why Liz wanted to talk to us was she feels like people don't understand how difficult it is for farmers. And of course, this year and last year, they've gotten exponentially worse. That's one reason why they were willing to open up their lives to us. And and I, I am really thankful that they were so generous because they want people to see see the struggle of the farmer, you know, what's happening now and, and how they've been impacted by this sort of global forces that are out of their control. Annie Gowan is a national correspondent for The Washington Post. showed itself in this church basement four years ago. This community, this church showed us how not to allow hate 
when it comes into our lives to take root in our souls. On Wednesday, Senator Cory Booker was in South Carolina, speaking at Mother Emanuel AME Church. That's where, in 2015, white supremacist Dylan Roof shot and killed nine people with the intention of starting a race war. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Please, Emanuel Church, there's plenty of people shot down here. Please send somebody right away. Emanuel Church? Felicia Sanders and her 11-year-old granddaughter managed to survive. We got uh, two people coming out, an adult female and a child that was found in the room. They need to get checked out. Two of Felicia's relatives, including her son Taiwanza, died inside the church. Felicia Sanders laid in the blood of her relatives, and she and her granddaughter had played dead in order to survive. Joy Sharon Yi is a video producer for The Post. She spoke with Felicia about what happened after the shooting and how her struggle with grief and loss didn't look like everybody else's. After the tragedy, I walk out the church without shoes on. I didn't have any shoes on. And um, I didn't have a purse. I walk out with my granddaughter face to my ribs, which I thought I... I thought I did a good job hiding her from everything that was around. But when I look at the when I look at the uh, film and court, I see that she saw much too much. She didn't know what to do about her clothes. She knew that it was the last part of her son and her aunt that she had, so she had it on for quite some time and. She told me that the day after was was when she finally took her clothes off and was able to take a shower. When I got in my shower and I looked down, that was the last. Part of my family members going down the drain. Felicia was a lifelong member of the church. Her her grandmother attended the church. Her great-grandmother attended the church. Her children were baptized there. She was a trustee, an usher. She was her life was the church. I can remember only missing Bible study a couple of times, and that's when I had breast cancer. Soon as they tell me I can leave the house, I went right back to Bible study. Everything about Emmanuel, I just love. What was unexpected for her was that she would lose this connection to the church after the shooting. So in the days and weeks and months after the shooting, I mean, we all remember it, right? That that this church in South Carolina ended up becoming national and international news, and it got a lot of attention. How did that change things for Felicia's relationship with her church? A day after the shooting, Dylan Roof was arrested, and at the bond hearing, family members of the victims came forward and forgave Dylan Roof. And so this forgiveness narrative had taken over and inspired both the city and the country. The church is and always has been the center of African-American life. If you remember, Barack Obama had eulogized the senior pastor. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. The church essentially became a pilgrimage site for 
for tourists, um, politicians, and reporters. And so in this kind of media frenzy, uh, Felicia started to feel forgotten and, and felt that while the, the leadership had preached about forgiveness and healing that publicly, that they had forgotten her privately. In what ways did Felicia feel like she had been forgotten by her church? Like, w- when did it come up? She describes that in the bond hearing that none of the leadership had been there for the families. No minister, no hierarchy came to the bond hearing. Then, after that, no clergy call us, even after that. But they ran all over the United States, speaking of forgiveness. You know, Felicia could not bring herself to go back to the fellowship hall where Wednesday night Bible studies are held. Um, She asked if those Bible studies could be moved. She could not go back to the place where her son died. But the leadership had felt that it had become a symbol, a place to stand against hate and bigotry. There's There was a balance that the leadership had to take of responding to this national attention and ministering to their congregation. And so you could see that play out from the beginning and Felicia struggling with it. We spoke with Eric Manning, who became the senior pastor of the church. I have had to learn what it means to be trauma-informed. I've had to give people the opportunity to kind of just express however they are feeling. The church leadership denies being unresponsive to Felicia after the shooting, and Felicia eventually decided to leave the church. So what is life like now for Felicia and for her granddaughter? They both live with PTSD. Did you have a question for me? She spoke with Joe Biden when he came to hold a town hall in Charleston and asked him, about what the gun violence and everything comes, post-traumatic stress disorder. What are we going to do about that? You know, I live with it. My granddaughter lived with it. Um, trying to get help is very hard. So with the gun violence, we need to find out what we're going to do about mental health because now I have mental health. Felicia told me it's difficult for her to hear popcorn pop. I think the sound triggers her in in some way. She can't close her eyes to pray. That's when um, Dylan Roof had shot and killed everybody when they closed their eyes to pray. So she hopes one day that she could. But in the meantime, she says, I don't close my eye to pray at all. When I'm home, I can close my eye and pray. But that's after I put the alarm on. Then I'll close my eye and pray and give it all to God. She recites this psalm, um, I lift my eyes up to the hills, where does my help come from? And she prays with her eyes open. The fact that this was a shooting that was so clearly rooted in racism and in Dylan Roof's desire to kill Black people, what does Felicia say about that? How does she make sense of it? Taiwan Sanders. When I asked her that, she she reminded me of what she said during the bond hearing. Your name, ma'am? Felicia Sanders. Thank you, Ms. Sanders, for being here. We welcome you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. 
you have killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. And, and I'll never be the same. Tawanza Sanders is my son, but Tawanza was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. But as we say in the Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. Thank you, ma'am. We've seen so many mass shootings over the last few years, and that the narrative that comes out of them is always one of coming coming together and people being united and finding a way to forgive and, and people finding a sense of community and solace in the aftermath of something terrible. Um, but what I think is really interesting about Felicia's story is that that's not the case for everyone, that in a lot of ways, when people experience this kind of trauma, it really affects them in ways that they can't get past or or ways that create a lot of distance between them and the communities that they used to love and be a part of. Yeah, I think that's that's really true. I mean, calls of unity are great, but I think Felicia reminds reminds us that every person has their unique trauma and suffering after a mass shooting. I don't care what you do how many people you kill. You wanted to start a race war. You wanted to just be evil, pure evil. But I still have the words. The words still mean the same. They still mean the same. Thou shall not kill. It's still written. For her, these calls of unity were, were great, of forgiveness were great, but that it, sometimes it didn't translate to actual support for survivors like her. What, is, what does your Bible remind you of? My Bible reminds me of the bloodshed. Um, it reminds me of the song I like, the blood that Jesus shed for me way back in Calvary. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary the blood that gave me strength from day to day it will never lose its power Joy Sharon Yee is a video producer for The Washington Post. You can find a link to her video about Felicia Sanders at postreports.com. And now, one more thing about 8chan, the anonymous message board. It's been an online haven for white supremacists and extremists. And this week, it went dark. Really what it is is all kinds of racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, extremism— any kind of hate you can imagine goes online on 8chan. I'm Drew Harwell. I cover technology for The Washington Post. 8chan is at the center of this really interesting battle in this typically super boring space online, which is the plumbing of the internet. It's the infrastructure firms that help keep the internet going. It's, you know, server farms and 
hosting companies and cybersecurity firms, all of these companies you never even think about when you're using the internet. That's where this battle over hate speech online is, is being fought. To make it easier to understand, I'll break it down like a high school relationship web. 8chan was friendly with Cloudflare until Cloudflare said, no, we're not working with you on Sunday night. So then Monday, 8chan was down most of the day, but it had found a friend in this company called Bitmitigate, which is owned by this other free speech absolutist company called Epic. And those people were friendly until it was discovered that Epic and Bitmitigate actually depended on the servers of this other company called Voxility. So when Voxility found out, they said, no, we don't want to support HAN, and they pulled all of that stuff offline. So Epic and Bitmitigate actually started to go offline. And other hate sites that they had been helping, including the Daily Stormer, which is a neo-Nazi site, also went offline. So there was this huge unrest and chaos. And then on Tuesday, Epic and Bitmitigate finally said, we're not going to play ball with this anymore either. And so they backed out. And so now HAN has went from several allies to zero, and they remain offline. The great thing about the internet is that you can't really stifle any one specific voice. If you're a if you're a journalist, if you're a protester in Hong Kong, you can always find a way to get your message out. But that's also one of the worst things about the internet, right? You can't censor a medium like this that is constantly shifting and is distributed all around the world. And so I think these voices will always be able to find a place online. But if you can limit the size of that place, if you can make that place harder to find, or if you can sort of stuff it into a smaller corner of the web, maybe you are preventing people from seeing it. Maybe you are reducing the audience or, or pushing it further away from the mainstream. For HN, they're struggling now to come back online. They may never be able to come back online, or they may come back online in some very different way. And the audience may have moved on. I, I don't know. I mean, we have to sort of wait and see whether any of this makes any difference, but I'm hopeful. Drew Harwell is a tech reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.